0: can't imagine a thousand generations singing glory to the Lord. Today's uh, scripture reading is the Gospel of Mark uh, 9, 1 to 29. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 793. And he said to them, and that's Jesus, truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does not come to Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did not and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever he seizes, and whenever it seizes him... It throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for who believe. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of God.
1: Thank you for reading Mark. I always like it when Mark reads the Gospel of Mark for us. just seems fitting, right? And no less on your birthday. So, happy birthday. How about we... uh, throw a picnic for you this afternoon. Sound like fun? <clears throat> Let's do that. All right. I do hope that you make plans to join us for the picnic this afternoon across the street. I think we're gonna have some good, good weather. I'm just kind of looking out and I see some sun out there. So should be some good weather. That'll be good. You know, it's good for the people of God to spend some time together doing fun things. Do you know fun, fun is okay. It's a good, it's a good thing. No, it's, it's good to spend some time together. You know, so much of the Christian life is about going out into the world where God has called us, and proclaiming, and so it's good from time to time to spend some time together and just enjoy each other's company and uh, have fun together. Is something that's there's something healthy about that, and so hope, hope you make plans to join us for that. I'm I'm making plans to beat uh, Mike in bags, so we'll see how that goes this afternoon. I don't know where, I don't know where Mike Mike is. I don't see him. Maybe he's out there, uh, but no, I probably won't ever. I probably won't ever beat Mike in uh, cornhole. I think if I started at 20 and he started at 0, he would score 21 points before I would score 1 point. So, there's that. But, Well, let's uh, we're, we're here in Mark chapter 9. And this morning, I'd like to do something just a little bit different as we start. And so, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this morning, what I'd like us to do as we start here is to read another passage of scripture. And in just a second, what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to stand together, not yet, but in just a minute, I'd like us to stand together and remain standing while we read this passage of scripture and as we pray together, just out of respect for God's word. And I think you'll see why in just a second here. But in Second Peter, you know, Mark's gospel, if you remember, Mark wrote his gospel sort of on the testimony of Peter. So Mark eyewitness, or, uh, uh, interviewed Peter, the eyewitness of all, all of these things that we read about. And then and, and he wrote down his gospel according to Peter's testimony. And so you can imagine today, I mean, Mark read for us, uh, not, not John Mark, but you know, this Mark, read for us uh, in Mark chapter 9, this transfiguration experience. And, so, so, and this, is, this is something that Peter, it says in the text, Peter was there for. And so as Mark is writing, he's probably recounting what Peter remembered about this amazing experience. But there's another place in our Bibles where Peter actually writes about that same experience. And it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he has something very interesting to say as he compares this experience that he has that he had with the word of God. And so what I'd like us to do is we're going to read, I'm going to read for us Second Peter chapter 1. And would you stand with me as we respect God's word together? Stand with me and we'll read Second Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll pray and then I'll let you be seated. I won't make you stand the whole time, I promise. He says, in, uh, starting in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So you can see he's, he's referencing this transfiguration experience. And, and you, he had this amazing experience. If you had an experience like that, you would not forget it. But here's what he has to say. Listen to what he has to say next. Aside from this amazing experience, he says in verse 19, And we have the prophetic word, in other words, s- Scripture, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention. So he says, we had, I had this amazing, here, I'm Peter, I had this amazing experience where I saw all of this, this transfiguration experience. But we have a more fully confirmed word to which we would do well to pay attention. Let me just finish the, the passage here. Pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter had this amazing experience, but more fully confirmed is the word that we hold in our hands today. And so let's thank, let's pray together. Let's thank God that we have God's word to us this morning. And then let's ask the Lord to do a work in our hearts to submit to this word, to pay attention, as Peter said here in 2 Peter. So let's pray, and then I'll let you be seated. God, we thank you this morning that you have given us your word. Thank you that it is, it is enough. And thank you that you... Uh, you teach us about yourself and here in the gospel of mark we can learn about you and what it means to follow you and so lord we thank you for your word and we also ask that you would give us hearts that are willing to submit to whatever it is that you have to say to us every sunday every time we open this book we pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to submit whatever we think whatever we want underneath the authority of your word So do that work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, if you were here the last two Sundays, uh, Pastor Wood walked us through the high point of the Gospel of Mark. Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ. He's the Messiah. And this point in Mark becomes kind of a transition In in Mark's gospel account. So in chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is uh, ministering in Galilee, and most of his ministry centers around the crowds. So this is where most of his healings and his miracles and his demon exorcisms, they're in, in chapters 1 through 8. Not all, but most of them are in that. And you see the crowd over and over and over again. Jesus is ministering to the crowd. But when we get when we get to the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus begins to withdraw from Galilee and withdraw from the crowd. And you can even see that in our text. So, you, it's, it's When he sees the crowd coming with this, uh, this demon-possessed boy, when he sees them coming, he, he, he heals them quickly, he heals the boy quickly. And so he begins to withdraw from the crowd. And instead, he begins to focus more on his disciples. And in these chapters, he begins to teach them what does it look like to follow him. And Mark's gospel draws extra attention to the disciples' failure to understand. I mean, you see that all throughout the gospel of Mark. And you get to the point where you're like, come on, still? (laughs) Uh, But they're slow to understand. And so Jesus takes this time to teach them. And to open the eyes of their hearts. I think it's interesting. In in this section, Mark bookends this section with two healings of sight. So you remember in Mark chapter 8, Jesus healed this guy and gave him sight kind of in stages. Like, slowly he began to see. And in chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. And it's almost as if Mark is including this on purpose to try to picture... What Jesus is doing to try to open the eyes of his disciples to truly understand who he is and what it means to follow him. And they're slow to understand. I mean, remember back in chapter 8, just a few weeks ago, we looked at this. uh, Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Christ. And he was right. (laughs) But just a few verses later, (laughs) we see Jesus looking at Peter and pointing his finger and saying, get behind me, Satan. Satan. So Peter clearly did not completely understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that the Messiah must suffer and die. And that his disciples must be willing to suffer as well. They must take up their own cross. And so today, when we come to Mark chapter 9, I think what we see is two foundational aspects of what it means to follow Christ. There are two things I think we see here in these 29 verses. Christ followers expect suffering and express dependence. Expect suffering and express uh, dependence. So first of all, Christ followers expect suffering. So this chapter opens with kind of an interesting statement. He says, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And I think that's probably just alluding to the transfiguration experience. Some, namely three of them, we're going to experience this uh, kingdom of God coming after it's come with power. So I think He's alluding to the transfiguration experience. But can you imagine what this experience would have would have been like? I mean, do you ever, as you're reading your Bible, do you ever like picture, like paint a picture in your mind of what this would what, th- what this would be like? I mean, this one. I mean, there's just so many. There's so many questions I have when I come to this text. I just like, I wonder what this would have been like. Um, what, what's going on here? Uh, like, like, why did he only take Peter, James, and John? Why didn't he take other disciples? Or was it light out or was it dark out? I, I don't know why, but I just always picture this as being like dark outside. Because then the, the, the light just kind of is more brilliant. I, I don't know. Like, but how do you picture this? Or, or uh, which mountain did they go to? So, like, a lot of, some people believe it was Mount Tabor. That's probably more motivated by, like, tourism. Like, let's pull people over here. So, probably is Mount Hormone. But, but I mean, who knows? Who knows what mountain it was? Or, but, what, but what did this look like? I mean, what did Peter, James, and John really see? Because you can tell that, it, I mean, it's obvious that Mark is just kind of recounting a best attempt description at what was seen. I mean, we know what this is like. Like, when you see something, like, extravagant, just magnificent, and then you try to explain it to your friends, like I mean, you you just you, you're like searching for words. You're like, I mean, it was it was so awesome, like it was amazing, and it was like this. And your friends look in there, like, uh huh, that's cool, great, awesome. And you're like, no, but but really, it was like it was like amazing, and like there was all this light, and there was, and you're like, okay, that's cool. And you're like, ah, oh, you just you just had to be there, right? And and it's almost like like uh, Mark and Peter Peter here is, try, is, uh, is trying to explain. I mean, it's like he's trying to explain what's going on. What did this look like? And, and the eye takes in a million details that the tongue just can't quite, quite express. And so I wonder what this would have been like. What, what would this look like? I mean, what did transfigured even really mean? What is it? I mean, what, what's going on here? And then how about this one? Why Moses and Elijah? Right? I mean, why was Jesus talking to them? Like, I'm sure it was exhilarating for Moses for the first time, standing there in the promised land that he's so longed to go to right? But, but Elijah, I mean, why, why Elijah? I mean, Elijah was a phenomenal guy. I mean, you read about him, and it's amazing, the things that you read. But why not somebody, I mean, there's, there's a lot of amazing people in the Old Testament. Like, why, why not, why him and not somebody else? And there were just, I mean, there's, there's so many things here, there, and there's some answers for some of these questions. Like, for instance, both Moses and Elijah uh, had significant mountaintop experiences that we read about and actually both of them at Mount Sinai. And there are so many parallels in this passage with a Mount Sinai experience that is kind of explained in the the book of Exodus. And there's all kinds of things. There's a mention of six days, the radiant appearance, the high mountain, the enveloping cloud, the voice from heaven. And so both Moses and Elijah prefigure Jesus in different ways. They point to Jesus. And we'll see in a few minutes how Elijah does that. But just for a second, let me show you how Moses does. So look at verse, look at verse 7. At the end of verse 7, the voice cries out from heaven. And, and the last three words of the verse are this. Listen to him. That is a direct reference to, uh, to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. If you like to write in your Bibles, you might write that cross reference. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 in your margin. Because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is teaching Israel, and he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so the voice from heaven is declaring that Jesus is that prophet like Moses that Moses referred to. And so there there are all these questions. Like, we try to understand what was this transfiguration experience like. There's all these questions that come to mind that we could ask about this. And there's all these connections that we could explore. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we could miss the whole point by all of these, like, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. We could miss the whole point. And, in fact, that's exactly what Peter did, wasn't it? You know, Mr. Uh, Stick Your Foot in Your Mouth Apostle, (laughs) who, uh, he, he, I mean, he's the guy, he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, I better just, uh, I, I don't know what to do, so I better just start talking. That's, that always seems to make everything better. I, I, I don't know what to say, so I'm just, I'm just going to start talking, and we'll, we'll see how it goes from there. And it never makes anything better, does it? <laughs> I mean, Peter, he just blurts stuff out, and it's never right. It's never, it's never go, it never goes well. I mean, look what he says in verse 5. Here he is in verse 5. He's like, ah, Rabbi, uh, it's good that we are here. Uh, let, us, let us make tents. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let, me, let me think quickly. Uh, let us make tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. <laughs> and it even says in verse 6, he had no idea what to say. I mean, he's, he's, he's just terrified. He doesn't know what to say. I mean, he's just so afraid. And, and I don't think it was just him. I mean, it, it obviously wasn't just him. Because look at verse 6. It says, uh, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, all three of them. I don't know what you do when you're afraid. Like, when you are absolutely terrified, I don't know what you do. I mean, Peter is stuck in his foot in his, in his mouth. I mean, he just, like, he, he just should have stopped talking. But, but that's what he does. When he's afraid, he starts talking. I don't know about James and John. My guess is that they were too busy soiling their garments to say anything. I don't know. Uh, but they were terrified. All of them were afraid. They were terrified. And they all miss the point. You say, how do you know? What is the point? Well, humans left to themselves will always misunderstand what God has said. But thankfully, despite humanity's constant failure to understand, God steps in to bring clarity. And that's exactly what he does here. I mean, Peter's all excited about Moses and Elijah. Wow, this is amazing. And he sees no difference between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. But then the voice comes. The cloud surrounds. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. (laughs) Listen to him. (laughs) It's like Peter missed it. But God wouldn't let Peter miss it. Peter was so busy talking that he missed the point. But standing right in front of him was the son of God. God himself in the flesh. And Peter started talking. But God's like, no, listen, <laughs> stop talking and listen. And here's why. Because Peter had an idea about what he wanted the Messiah to be. I mean, Peter wanted a Messiah who would come and conquer and do amazing things and rule for all of eternity. And Jesus was going to do that. But Peter missed all of what Scripture said. He, missed, he, missed, he, he was reading part, but he didn't read all of it. Jesus will come and reign. He will do this. He will conquer and he will rule. But first, he was going to suffer and die. The pathway to glory is first through suffering. The cross precedes the crown. And Peter had no category for that. He could only imagine a conquering Messiah, not a suffering one. And that's why he asks this question on the way down from the mountain. I mean, do you, you kind of like, I mean, when I first read that at, uh, in Mark chapter 9, when I first read that, I was like, okay, what is going on with this question? He asked this question, and then Jesus ans- answers with another question. How are these tied together? But, but Peter's question, look at verse 11. He says this, on the way, they're coming down from the mountain, and he asks, he asks Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And this is actually actually a leading question. And the last time that, that uh, Peter rebuked Jesus, he got a stern rebuking himself. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. And so Peter's like, he's kind of getting smart. He's like, okay, I don't want Jesus to tell me that again. And so I'm going to kind of reshift things. Instead of, instead of rebuking Jesus, I'm just going to ask him kind of a leading question. Like, ah, Jesus, I really still don't understand. Um, and so he asked him, why do the scribes say that, that first Elijah must come? Let me see if I can explain this question. Okay, the scribes did teach that Elijah must come first. And actually, this time, they were right. Because they were reading their Bibles. And that's why Jesus affirms this truth in verse 12. So the scribes were right because they were referring to Malachi. So again, if you like to write in your Bibles, you might write, in the margin, you might write Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6, because this is the passage that the scribes were talking about. And it says this, uh, Malachi 4, verse 5, says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so the scribes were right, mostly. (laughs) But here's where Peter is going. If Elijah is supposed to come first, to restore all things. And if this is imminent, like it's about to happen, which if we look back in Mark chapter one, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is at hand. It's imminent, it's ready to come. So if Elijah's gonna come, restore all things, and the kingdom of God is ready to happen, like all things are the, all things are ready to be restored. Then here's, here's what Peter's point is. Wouldn't that negate the need for Jesus to suffer? I mean, Peter is still hung up on this suffering of the Messiah business. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer. And so Jesus responds to Peter's leading question with a question of his own. Look at verse 12. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I mean, Jesus points Peter back to his Bible. And in other words, Peter wasn't reading his whole Bible. I mean, he missed what Isaiah had said about the fact that the Messiah was going to suffer. He, so he wasn't reading his whole Bible. And what's interesting is that Jesus explains that Elijah actually suffered too. Okay, We've we're, we got a lot of explanation going on right now, but stick with me. We've got a lot of explanation. We're going to we're gonna see where this starts to come into, where, where this leads us. But what's interesting is that Elijah actually suffered too. So in verse th- 13, when Jesus refers to Elijah, he's actually talking about John the Baptist. Okay, So in Matthew chapter 17, the parallel passage here to Mark chapter 9, uh, Jesus actually, Mark, Matthew actually says, and his disciples understood that he was referring to John the Baptist. So Jesus is referring to John the Baptist here. And there is a striking parallel here between Elijah, remember Elijah, who suffered at the hand, he suffered mistreatment by the hand of an unruly woman who was manipulating a weak king. But there's a striking parallel between Elijah and John the Baptist, who was beheaded at the request of an unruly woman manipulating a weak king. And so Jesus is tying all of these things together. He's tying all of this together. And if you just went to sleep because I lost you with all these Old Testament connections, then wake back up. Uh, Because the point here, the point in verses 1 through 13 is this. The pathway to glory leads through suffering. And that is for both the Messiah, Jesus, and everyone who follows him. That's for us. Let me say it differently. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to expect suffering for his name. Moses suffered from the Israelites. Elijah suffered from Jezebel. John the Baptist suffered. Jesus suffered. Jesus' disciples suffered. What Jesus is trying to bring all this together, he's saying there's a pattern. The Messiah will suffer, and so if you're going to follow Jesus... You can expect to suffer for his name. I mean, everyone likes the idea of glory, right? Everyone likes a Jesus who brings happiness and joy and victory. And he does. Everyone likes the idea of going to heaven when you die. But not all are willing to follow Jesus in his pathway of suffering. But what has Jesus said? If they persecuted me, John, John says in his gospel, if they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. For the Christian, suffering is inevitable. Now that's not like a joyful, happy, wonderful, great, that's awesome. <laughs> but it's true. This is, this is what Jesus is teaching his, his followers. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to expect Suffering. And this sort of suffering, it ranges. It ranges from brutal physical persecution, like many in the history of the church have faced. But it also includes things like emotional and social suffering, like ostracism because you do things differently, or verbal mistreatment because you don't take part in things that unbelievers spend their lives doing. Or just that kind of like, ugh, a Christian. That you that you feel when you talk to people. I mean in some places in the world Christians are being brutally executed for their faith. But that's not often the case in the West right now. Maybe someday, but whenever you hold but but most Americans, most American Christians don't experience that kind of physical suffering for their faith right now. But whenever you hold firmly to the truth that God has given, as culture changes and evolves and it always does, Whenever you hold firm to the truth of God's word, eventually, at some point, your message, this message, will become unpopular. That's just how life is. In our day, so what are these things that are unpopular? Well, in our day, things like biblical justice or forgiveness or gender distinctions or the value and dignity of all human lives, or the refusal to take part in slander fests and online mobs, or like you know, refusing to berate people in the comment section of this post that went viral. I mean, when you just live out the gospel, when you live wholeheartedly like a Christian, you can expect that your views, these views, will not be popular. And so you will experience suffering and pain at the hands of people who don't believe this. I mean, when Christians live out the gospel, they can expect to suffer in some way for what they believe. It's inevitable, according to Jesus. And so let me offer three applications. I mean, if this is true, if suffering for Christ is inevitable for a Christian, then that means at least three things, probably more, but these are three things that I thought of. First of all, if you are not yet a follower of Christ... If, you, if you're not yet a Christian, you must count the cost. If you're still on the fence about Jesus, you're not sure what I, you know, I'm not sure what I believe about this. If, if you're still on the fence about Jesus, you need to understand that turning to Jesus will not remove every frustration and pain in this life. It won't. In fact, sometimes it seems like turning to Jesus sometimes invites discomfort in this life. This side of heaven, you say, uh, Pastor Jordan. That is a terrible evangelism strategy. Strategy. <laughs> you need this. It's amazing. It's going to make you suffer. <laughs> oh, sign me up. That sounds great. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound good. But at the same time, it's important that we understand the reality of suffering for those who follow Christ, because otherwise, we might make a blind emotional decision, profess Christ, but then. we're we experience difficulty, walk away. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about with a with a seed that's sown on the rocky ground. And so we need to understand that there is a cost to following Jesus. It's not hard. It's it's I mean, and it's not easy, it is hard. And it's completely worth it. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, I mean, when, when you truly grasp this book, suffering for Jesus is like giving up a few pennies to inherit a massive fortune that will never run out. But it is important that you understand that there is a cost. There is a cost to be considered. Following Jesus in this life is not easy, so count the cost. But second, for Christians in the room, if suffering for Christ is inevitable, if if it's going to happen, if it's inevitable, then if you have not experienced suffering for Christ, if you've experienced little or no suffering for Christ, then why not? And I want to be careful here, because it's not as though Christians should go out looking for suffering. Oh, I can't! I can't wait to be suffered. I can't! I can't wait! You just, just, you just lay it on me! Just nail it! Because I want to! I want to experience. No, it's not that we're supposed to look for suffering. Uh, I quoted John uh, fifteen earlier. Listen to verses eighteen and nineteen. If the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You wouldn't experience suffering because you're of the world. But, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 3. Listen to this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, he says. I mean, if suffering is inevitable for someone who is not of this world, for all who desire to live a godly life, if suffering is inevitable and you never experience any suffering ever at all for Christ, then why not? If you never feel the awkward response that seems to communicate, oh, you're that kind of a person, (laughs) then could it be because you've grown silent in sharing your faith? You're afraid to share your faith. Do you intensely avoid certain topics with your unsaved friends because you don't want to give the Christian perspective because you know what they're going to say if you give the Christian perspective? Christians shouldn't be looking for suffering, ready to pounce on every last opportunity. (laughs) But if you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus and you live out the gospel, you will experience it at some point. But third, if you're experiencing suffering for Christ, then you need to know something you are not abandoned. You're not abandoned. In our culture, when the online mob condemns you, clearly you're wrong. You know, if if people talk out against you, if people look down on you, then there must be something wrong with you. But that's not what Jesus said. I mean, you can expect to suffer, and this is not a sign that God has left you. You are not abandoned. I mean, the Father puts a stamp of approval on Jesus, who suffered more than any of us will. So suffering is not a sign that God has left you. Note the cross precedes the crown, but the crown is sure to come. All who suffer, all who follow Jesus will suffer for his name, but there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when we shout the hymn of heaven with the heroes of the faith. Victory is sure. The end is sealed. And so your suffering for Christ right now is not a sign that Jesus has left you. He doesn't care about you. God has not abandoned you. Suffering for Jesus is worth it because there is all of eternity to come. And so it's worth it. And it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. And so part of what it means to follow Jesus is to expect suffering. And are you willing to follow Christ and to suffer for Christ? He is worth it. So Christ followers expect suffering. But very quickly, Christ followers express dependence. And I think it's what we see in verses 14 through 29 here. So you've got Jesus coming down from, from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And they come down from the mountain and immediately they're met with this desperate need. And there are a ton of details in this story, just like there were in the first story, that we could talk about. But since Mark read it, and for sake of time, I'd like to kind of zero in on the point of the story here. In this story, we find a father, a desperate father, with broken faith. And we find some bewildered disciples, frustrated by inability. And I think there's an important lesson that ties both of these together. I mean, think with me first about the father. I mean, this father is a desperate guy. I mean, you can see his desperation written all over this story. So like when Jesus, when Jesus comes down and he looks at the scribes and he says, okay, what's going on? Why are you arguing with, with, with my disciples? <laughs> so he's looking at the, the, at the scribes. And this father, he doesn't even give the scribes a chance to answer. He like jumps in. He is desperate. He takes charge of the circumstance. He's like, ah, let me talk about something here because I need help. <laughs> I mean, he just jumps in here. He's desperate. And you can see why he's so desperate. I mean, his son, his poor son, has suffered with demon possession since childhood. And the symptoms are just devastating. Epilepsy, mouth foaming, I mean, he's stiff-bodied. The demons have attempted over and over again to kill him, casting him into the fire to scorch him, or into the water to drown him. I and mean, they're trying to kill him. This is this is devastating. And so this father brings his son to Jesus. But in Jesus' Since, since he's on the mountain, he takes him to the disciples the, the nine disciples that are left there, but they couldn't cast him out, and so now he's even more devastated, and he's more desperate and he's more disbelieving, he's more doubtful. And so he brings the child to Jesus, and he doubtfully pleads with Jesus in verse 22. He says, "I mean, if you can do anything, please help us." And look at Jesus' response in verse 23. He says, "If you can." He's like, "What? If you can?" Do you know who you're bringing your son to? And he draws attention to the crux of the matter. He says, All things are possible for one who believes. This father's issue was his broken faith. But notice how his desperation drives him to just the right place. I mean, He cries out what all followers of Christ cry out. He says, I believe, <laughs> help my unbelief. I mean, this is the cry of every Christian. Because in this cry, there is a declaration of belief. Yes, God, I believe. Yes, this is, I, true, I truly believe. But there's also a recognition of brokenness and entire dependence on Jesus. There's both faith and repentance in this cry. I believe, help my unbelief. God, I love you. Change that part of my heart that doesn't love you. God, you are better than my sin, but break down the sin that still remains in my heart. This is life as a follower of Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, you can affirm your faith in him and at the same time admit your brokenness because he's the very one who can do something about the situation. And he proves it in the story as he heals and casts out this demon from this boy. And so, where are you at this morning? Do you feel like a wretch this morning? You know, sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes you come to the the worship gathering and you feel great and excited and joyful and happy in Jesus. And sometimes you come to the worship gathering and you feel like you're just barely making it in. Do you feel like a wretch this morning? Are you painfully aware of your shortcomings? you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, but you know that you fall far short of what he has called you to. Is that where you're at this morning? First of all, welcome to the club. Because <laughs> that's where all of us are. But second, if you come to Jesus, you have come to the right place. Fall on Jesus, an in in utter dependence on his ability to change you. Because you cannot change yourself. Don't you love this cry? Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Christ followers express dependence. But as we draw this to a close, I want you to notice something from the disciples' perspective. Because it ties both of these together. Father's perspective, the disciples' perspective, because in their discussion with Jesus at the end of this uh, text, we find probably the greatest evidence of true dependence on God. I mean, have you ever have you ever listened to a, a preacher that said something like, you're "like you just need to depend more on God," or maybe you listen to another Christian give this testimony and you're like, he's "like yeah, man, I've just been living in my own strength recently, and I just need to depend more on Jesus. I need to rely on Jesus." Well, that is great. And that is true, but it's also sort of vague. (laughs) Because how do you know when you're not depending on God? How do you know when you are living life in your own strength? How do you know? And the disciples in the story, I mean, they were unable to cast out this demon, but, but remember, back in Mark chapter 6, they did cast out many demons. Verse 13 says, they cast out many demons, and Jesus wasn't with them there. So what is the difference between that time and this time? The answer is that they were self-confident. And let me show you how I know that. They were leaning on their past successes and forgot that their only source of true spiritual power was directly related to Jesus. Uh, when, when the disciples ask Jesus, they go into this house in verse 28, they go into this house and they ask Jesus, and they say, uh, they, they say, "Why could we not cast it out?" And G- what is Jesus' answer? He responds to them, "This kind, in other words, demons, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer." And and Jesus is not here, he's not categorizing demons. He's not saying, some demons, if you pray, you can can get them out, and some demons, you can get out in your own strength. No, that's not what he's doing. He's drawing attention to the disciples' lack of prayer. He's drawing their attention to the lack of dependence on Jesus. And what is the greatest evidence of a dependence on Jesus? It's prayer. It's prayer. Because when I am keenly aware of my utter inability. I mean, when I am so overwhelmed by my inadequacy, I go to the one person who can actually do something about it. That's what people do when they're distressed. When they're distressed, they do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. And when Christians are desperate and completely dependent, they pray. That's what we do. Can I just tell you guys, I've seen this in my own life recently. Um, uh, there, recently in my life, there have been uh, circumstances, there have been several circumstances where God has brought me to a place where I feel completely inadequate. And can I just tell you something? This last month, my, my life has been a constant conversation with God. It's like, I mean, I've, uh, you know, I'm talking to people, and I'm talking to Jesus at the same time. I'm preaching. And in the middle of preaching or teaching, I'm talking to God. I'm talking to my kids, and I'm talking to God. I'm talking to my wife, and I'm talking to God. I'm driving in the car, and I'm talking to God. I'm listening to something, and I'm talking to God. It's like, I mean, everything, everything has been a conversation with God. And this is this, this is not to, this is not to be like oh Pastor Jordan I'm awesome because I'm always talking with God look at me no because the whole point is that I noticed a difference <laughs> before that I wasn't talking to God all the time but when God brings us to a place where we feel our utter inadequacy we pray I mean do you notice I'm I'm, I'm not just looking at you and saying you better pray <laughs> no I'm saying when you feel inadequate you do pray That's what Christians do. And so how about you this morning? Are you desperate for God? Are you keenly aware that without God, you have no hope? And without God, you cannot minister to people, those unsafe friends or family members that you have. You cannot change their heart. Your sin problem that you've been working on, you cannot kill it on your own. Even loving God. You cannot love God on your own. You desperately need God to work in you. So are you dependent on that? Are you aware of your need? And how do you know if you're aware of your need? Do you pray? Is prayer a priority in your life? Or is it just that thing that you do last, you know, if you have time, which we never end up having time? And Is it a a priority for you? I know that Wednesday at 5.45 doesn't work for everyone with work and kids, and I I totally get that. But it might be that some of us need to make that more of a priority. Or if that time doesn't work, it might be that we need to make other times. Find a time to get together with with believers to pray together. Pray with your family. And you can turn off the TV and pray together. Pray with your spouse. It's It's much more effective than watching that other episode. Pray with your spouse. Pray in the car. I mean, As you're listening to whatever you're listening to, pray in the car. Turn it, turn it into a conversation with Jesus. When you're on the job, talk to God. When you're walking around, talk to God. When you're talking with other people, talk to God. When you're, whatever you're doing, talk with God. Because when Christians understand their absolute inability for all of life, they pray. So Christ followers expect suffering and express... Dependence. Are you willing to suffer for the one who gave his life for you? And have you recognized that you are completely dependent on Jesus for all of life? Because that's what it looks like to follow Christ. Let's pray together. God, this morning we want to simply cry out what this Father. And our text cried out. We believe. That's why we're gathered here. We believe. But when we go out and go our separate ways, we experience unbelief <laughs> constantly. Doubts. Sin. Frustration. No joy. All these things. And so, Lord, we declare to you this morning, we believe, but we ask you that you would help our unbelief. Would you drive us to our need for you. Would you do whatever it takes in each of our lives to bring us to the point where we have nothing and we know we have nothing. Where we feel our inadequacy so that we turn to you, the source of strength. And Lord, would you make us willing to go out and live out the gospel and be willing to suffer whatever, it, whatever that means for each of us. Because we love and care about you most in this life. And with all this, Lord, we look forward to the day when we will enjoy you for all of eternity. We look forward to that day. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray together this morning. Amen.